that seem impossible might not be, and outcomes that are impossibly good are achievable, that is the only way we are going to face the challenges in front of us. The Ethicist Corner, brought to you by the Kegley Institute of Ethics. Welcome everyone to The Ethicist Corner. My guest today is Max Kinner, founder and executive director of the Bard Prison Initiative, which enrolls incarcerated women and men in academic programs that culminate in degrees from Bard College in New York. Max is a leading advocate for college and prison programming. He is co-founder of the Consortium for the Liberal Arts in Prison, which supports colleges and universities in establishing college and prison projects nationwide, and also of the Bard Micro College, which establishes rigorous tuition-free college opportunities within urban areas in partnership with community-based institutions. Max also serves as Vice President for Institutional Initiatives and Advisor to the President on Public Policy and College Affairs at Bard College. I want to note that Max will be joining the Kegley Institute of Ethics for a public lecture entitled The Long History of College and Prison, a Field at the Crossroads on March 18th at 6 p.m. Pacific. That will be hosted via Zoom and is free and open to all. So we highly encourage you to join us for that. And for those interested in learning more about the Bard Prison Initiative, I highly recommend watching the 2019 documentary film, College Behind Bars, which is available for free on PBS at pbs.org. Max, uh, thanks for joining us. Welcome to The Ethicist Corner. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Super excited to talk with you today. Uh, the Kegley Institute is, has been for quite some time, very committed to critical engagement with incarceration, including thinking about um, dynamic approaches to prison education. And I, I wanted to ask you though first, I mean, how are you initially drawn to working on educational programming for incarcerated persons? Sure, well, there's lots of ways to, to tell the story. And I think the first and most important one was I was growing up uh, in New York City uh, in the 1980s, mostly the 1990s, uh, at a time when the phenomenon of what we now call mass incarceration, the term didn't exist at the time, was something that could be felt everywhere, uh, across the city, at the street level. Um, and it was a time when it became obvious, not only that we were gradually, and it really wasn't gradual, but it felt gradual because it wasn't reported in the press. It wasn't considered a top shelf issue, at least not, you know, an overinvestment in crime wasn't con considered a, a top shelf issue. Maybe a response to crime was considered important at the time. Mm -hmm. But we as a society began incarcerating more and more people at younger and younger ages, at smaller and smaller infractions of the law. It was obvious throughout that this was a targeted intervention, that it was targeting young men uh, of color, particularly African-American men from specific neighborhoods, that it was somehow a response to the relative success and failures of the civil rights movement mm -hmm. uh, and a central part of the story of our generation of Americans. Mm -hmm. And I would say that this level of uh, cynicism about young people and their futures, um, while like every public policy in American life for 150 years, uh, African-Americans uh, received the worst part of that policy, mm -hmm. that that cynicism about young people wasn't exclusive 
to targets of mass incarceration or African Americans because it coincided with a radical divestment. The investment in prisons coincided with a radical divestment in education, particularly higher education for all people, particularly mm -hmm. uh, here in New York. Mm. So these were things that were uh, intuitive uh, as I was growing up uh, and eventually going to college in the 1990s. Um, I went, I left New York City to go to Bard College, which is in the Hudson Valley in New York, a neighborhood surrounded by state correctional facilities, made a trip that physically resembled uh, the trip that many young men precisely my age were taking to go to institutions with the opposite impact of a liberal arts college. Mm -hmm. And I had the idea that we as a college might have something to offer. And it only took just a little bit of research to discover that actually there was, in fact, a long history of education and even college education in prisons that was at an inflection point at just that moment when I was an undergraduate at Bard. So, Max, this is, I mean, you, you talk about this, it's interesting the way you put it, this kind of divestment in education and this investment in incarceration. But you, you also mentioned this long history of, of college and prisons uh, programming. And I know you're gonna be talking about this in your March 18th lecture, but for you know, our audience who don't know much about college and prison programming, how, how well represented are these programs nationally? Like, is this a, are there lots of prisons across many states that have college and prison programming or is this relatively rare? It depends in which moment in time you're talking and it depends how you define a college and prison program. Throughout American history, there have been germs of optimism in American prisons. There have been the idea that maybe there could be something good or something forward-looking that we could glean from these institutions that are generally so despairing. And there have been many more moments, many more practitioners who view prisons as purely punitive, purely backward-looking. Mm -hmm. But that tension goes back a very long way. For the purposes of this conversation, even though the history is much longer than that, I would say that the modern history of college and prison begins roughly at the same time of the advent of mass incarceration. Mm -hmm. And that is to say that in the late 1960s, early 1970s, you have the pivot during the first Nixon administration to the war on drugs, the turn to an increasingly punitive non-welfare state. But you also have as a holdover from the Johnson administration and from the more optimistic parts of the 1960s, the emergence of federal Pell Grants. And so you have this strange history where uh, on the one hand, in the very early 1970s, you think prisons might be abolished. And they, that story quickly pivots to a radical increase in punishment, investment in prisons, and the number of people in prison in the United States. And the terrible story that mass incarceration becomes beginning mm -hmm. in the early 1970s. But you also have this counterintuitive subtext that goes throughout. And that is the organic kind of springing of little 
colleges in these prisons throughout all 50 states that are created by educators and incarcerated people and advocates and sometimes jailers themselves all across the country. Mm. And please. Sorry, Max, I didn't mean to interrupt. I, was, I wanted to kind of touch on that, that one point that you're mentioning there about the diversity of these programs. So they're not, these programs are not always linked to universities and colleges then. So they're, they're the people who form them, it can be, it's, your experience is very diverse, diverse in orientation. They should be linked to colleges and universities. And in order to draw support like a Pell Grant, they must be linked mm-hmm. to college and university, colleges mm-hmm. or universities that are fully accredited. But how they are linked and how they are managed and how they are reported back to the Federal Department of Education or a State Department of Corrections, that varies very widely. Whether they are degree granting or just granting a handful of credits here or there varies very widely. Mm-hmm. So you don't have a centralized accounting. Nobody ever knows how many college and prison programs exist at any given moment in American Mm -hmm. history. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we don't know what the content of those programs consists of. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. Generally, these are under-resourced programs. They're programs that come and go. BPI is a little bit of an exception now, 20 years in, uh, which uh, is terrific for us. Um, But it's important to emphasize, again, that these programs sprang up in different places all across the country, giving incarcerated people in this really dispiriting uh, and violent time in the history of American public policy, Mm a outlet for some kind of optimism, hope, and agency. And at least for us at BPI, we don't do the work to accommodate these kinds of metrics, but it's worth saying explicitly at the beginning of this discussion that college and prison throughout the 70s, 80s, and early 90s did more to reduce recidivism, the rate at which people leave prison and then come back, which is the metric that all the sort of criminologists of that time period fixated on the most. They did the most to reduce violence within a prison. They did the most to restore a relationship between a person in prison and their family outside. They did the most to make a person likely to find gainful employment post-release. And even if they that person did not find gainful employment post-release, these programs still had an impact of reducing the likelihood that they returned to prison. They reduced, again, violence in the prison, and they had significant support from the people who ran the prisons as well as people enrolled in the programs. So that is to say, these programs did more of what we would hope might happen in the prison than anything else. And it did all of that more cheaply than anything else we were doing in those institutions. And nonetheless, these programs were eviscerated in 1994 with the Clinton crime bill, uh, when Congress made incarcerated women and men explicitly not eligible for federal Pell Grants and the field collapsed, experienced in Armageddon uh, that following year in 1995, that is just beginning to be reversed today. And Max, you, you offer there a number of compelling arguments for why college and prison programming is so um, so important and so central, right? I mean, even from reducing recidivism rates, um, 
truly achieving the mission of kind of um, quality rehabilitation, providing greater life opportunities after incarceration. And so, you know, you, you are the founder and executive director of one of the most impactful college and prison programming uh, initiatives in the country out of Bar Prison Initiative. And, you know, researching your program, the, the success is obvious, you know, both in terms of the achievements of your students, you've had 550 degrees conferred and currently are enrolling over 300 incarcerated students in your program. Um, you know, what do you think has allowed BPI to be so successful? I mean, you mentioned that um, not all programs have been as longstanding and have lasted, right? You've been around since 1999 and are doing this impactful work. What has allowed that to happen in your view as the founder? There are a lot of ways to answer that question. We are fortuitous uh, in that we are housed at Bard College, which is a place where taking risks like this is welcome. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's hard in the year 2021 to appreciate just how viscerally unpopular this kind of work was back in 1999 or 2000 or 2001. Um, so there's that. Um, you know, I'd like to just say that another reason I think we are successful is that even if you, and I'm glad you do, think those arguments that I repeated a moment ago were compelling about all the kind of criminological facing arguments or sociological facing arguments for college and prison. We try at BPI to askew those. We don't work to make the prisons less bad. We come to the prisons to make the landscape of higher education better, to seek out brilliant and ambitious students, mm -hmm. to make the college and university systems in New York and across the country more inclusive, more representative of the breadth of ambition across the country, uh, and to advocate for the humanities, the liberal arts and sciences, uh, for the arts, um, for scientific and mathematical engagement in the pockets of American life where the university system has failed the worst. And if that is your mission, if that is what you're looking for across the country, it's tragic, it's outrageous, it's obscene, but it's true that the prisons then transform uh, from uh, something that we should stay away from to actually a place where a vast amount of talent and capacity uh, exists that we should and must engage in completely different ways than we are. Yeah, I, and I'm really glad you brought that up, Max. You know, I mean, I, I'm thinking just in terms of my own experience as a prison educator in Maryland and in California, specifically doing philosophy programming. You know, I often tell people, and you know, it, it's, sometimes people are surprised by this, but the, the idea that actually some of the best philosophy classes, if not the best philosophy classes I've had and been part of, have been with incarcerated students, and that's because of the talent I've encountered within those populations, the the level of discourse, the level of desire and engagement in the material, 
Um, yeah. And so for me, that as an educator and somebody who's passionate about philosophy and ethics, that's always been really wonderful, right? It's something I've, I've really enjoyed in that experience. And at the same time, I know prisons can be tricky to work with in terms of bureaucracy, uh, surprise shutdowns, your class being canceled and you didn't, you weren't aware, you're, you know, we, I think many of us have had that experience and maybe restrictions on learning materials, right? And, 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 other, and other challenges. What, what are some of the challenges you've encountered um, in the Bar Prison Initiative, you know, over the years and or maybe either in getting the program established or just more routine challenges that you and your team have had to overcome to make this, this project a success? Look, working in prisons is, um subjects anyone to a large scale of inconvenience and sometimes indignity and that comes with the territory mm -hmm. uh, but that's what we me and my colleagues do for a living right if if you want to boil down what i do for a living uh to one of the finest points what we do is try to raise the money deal with the prisons and get superb college faculty from their car door to their classroom door with the least bureaucratic interference, the least noise, and allow them, create the possibility for them to run a college seminar that as closely resembles a typical normal college seminar as possible, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. it's our job as administrators to kind of uh, insulate ourselves from those challenges mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh you know that's what i do for a living so it doesn't it doesn't bother me uh so much as one might think and i hope we make it easy for the faculty but there are other challenges we face as well beyond just the challenges of dealing interfacing working within the prisons of course we have to raise money for these programs we have to work to ensure that the students themselves experience college in a way as independent as possible from the larger prison punishment institution. And that involves not only a sort of uncomfortable space within the prison and occupying that over a long period of time, but also making sure faculty are approaching these students not as some kind of novel incarcerated kind of um, object of their own learning or study or fascination but learners with the full breadth of capacity curiosity uh, and talents as students they would encounter anywhere mm -hmm. and that kind of uh, bigotry that kind of liberal bigotry um, is as much a piece of the work and contending with that is as much labor uh, as perhaps the more intuitive versions. And Max, and you talk about the wealth of talent in terms of the students you're you're working with and overcoming even this liberal bigotry, as you put it. And I think one thing that I found powerful and I think it maybe does that well is the, the documentary College Behind Bars um, that details the stories of several of the men and women enrolled in the Bar Prison Initiative. It's a powerful film. I was greatly moved by it. And I, I'm wondering if you can speak to how this project came about and, and why did BPI choose to participate in this program? Participate in the film? In the film, yes. Sure. Uh, well, it was a good number of years ago now. We had a professor who was teaching a class 
on the history of social movements uh, and was running through, uh, you know, the history of abolition and uh, the labor movement, what have you, and did a segment on prohibition. And this was shortly after uh, Ken Burns and Lynn Novick uh, released their film on that subject, on prohibition. Um, and the the professor invited Lynn and Sarah Botstein, uh, the producer of the film, to come uh, and give a lecture. Mm -hmm. And they gave a lecture having just toured the United States, talking to students at colleges and universities of every variety, uh, and were, like you just described, Michael, overwhelmed by the scale of engagement uh, of the incarcerated students they met, and, and left with the sense that this was a story that America needed to learn something about. Mm -hmm. And for us at BPI, you know, we always approach media with quite a lot of skepticism. Um, you know, when uh, Ken Burns's brand comes to you, that is something to take seriously. You know, yeah. a vast number of people will see it. Um, you know, it'll be seen um, respectfully by people across the political spectrum. Um, uh, and that is, uh, important to us, mm -hmm. right? And I think that uh, gamble certainly paid off with the restoration of Pell Grants under the Trump administration uh, late last year. Um, but most of all, and this is really important, it relates to a lot of the paradoxes. It engages many of the paradoxes that are fundamental to our work. When people hear about what we've done at BPI over the years, they're very quickly convinced that the idea of college and prison is a good thing. Mm -hmm. They're less convinced that college and prison should be done well. They're less convinced that incarcerated people might be capable or interested in the same kind of college opportunity that they would want for themselves or their own children. Mm -hmm. So as much as anything, as certainly as much as a piece of advocacy, doing the documentary was inspirational to us so that an archive could exist, an archive of the scale of achievement, the breadth of ambition, the rigor of intellectual engagement that characterizes a BPI classroom each and every day. Because when people don't see it directly, they're not convinced that it is real. Yeah, agree. And, and I think, and the film does that super well. And I just, I wanna encourage our audience to, if you've not seen College Behind Bars, um, it's available for free, uh, pbs.org. So I, I would highly recommend it. And I think, you know, as a viewer, I can attest to what Max is saying. I mean, I, even as somebody who's done prison education before, you just, it's just super striking the, 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 the level of the discourse, the level of the educational work that's happening within the prison and, um, you know, the debate scenes and just the getting to hear first, firsthand from students involved in the program about their life stories and just really how courageous they are too, honestly, in overcoming some really significant challenges to um, be so successful and committed to what they're doing. And for me, I just found it very inspirational, so. I did want to, uh, Max, maybe touch on something that you might be considering your March 18th talk a bit. Maybe this is a little bit of a, you know, an appetizer for our audience. But 
what do you see as some of the most pressing needs for education in prison to move forward in the next five to 10 years? When you're looking, okay, how can we grow this work, do it more effectively, take strides uh, you know, over this next five to 10 years? Are there some things you keep in mind in that area? Sure. Uh, how much time do we have? Right, right. Yeah, take, take as much time as you need. <laughs> Uh, first of all, let me just just posit where we are as a moment, right? I'm, I'm, we haven't focused too much on this Pell Grant question, but after 25, 26 years, we achieved the singular public policy goal in the entire field, which was the reversal of this ban on Pell Grant eligibility for incarcerated people. Um, that was a piece of the Crime Bill of 1994. That, uh, happened just this last December. So, so that's a huge deal in this space. It's a deal fraught with problems, a new and different set of problems than we're used to contending with. Mm -hmm. But it's it's um, take it or leave it. It is absolute no brainer. It is what we have hoped for this whole time. So what does that mean for the future of college and prison? We've spent 25 years arguing that college and prison should be. That argument is over, and at least for the moment, we have won. Mm -hmm. Now, we are going to fight over what college and prison can or should be. Mm -hmm. That is a much more nuanced, much more challenging argument, especially in the contemporary American climate in which the humanities the liberal arts and sciences are viewed as some kind of abstract or elite indulgence, mm -hmm. even though, in fact, there's never been a moment in history when a liberal education is more central to a learner's career and fulfillment later in life than in the 21st century. Very we are agree. going to argue about who really controls the college and prison space in the new publicly subsidized era? Will it be really a college space or will it be a prison space that's a little better than the rest of the prison spaces, but still a prison space? That will play out on the ground in hundreds or thousands of correctional institutions across the United States. And lastly, the question is, what will we learn in higher education from the success of incarcerated students over the full last generation that we can bring to other contexts? We now live in a moment of decarceration. There are half the people in prison in New York State than when we started BPI in 1999. That doesn't mean poverty has gone away. That doesn't mean racism has gone away. That doesn't mean exclusion is a thing of the past. It means those things have moved and transformed in unpredictable or predictable, recognizable or unrecognizable ways. And it's our job, not only to make the college and prison space as strong and transformative as it can possibly be, but also to find new places where educators are otherwise failing to engage brilliant and justifiably cynical potential college undergraduates. Mm -hmm. Max, thanks. That's, that's helpful. Uh, and I'm I'm thinking now too about a 
a question that, you know, we'll probably get at your talk on the 18th. And I know we, we did a program on education in prisons in California last week, and this question came up. And, you know, when you're giving talk to maybe the students or faculty members who aren't directly involved in BPI, but are interested in getting involved in supporting, you know, college and prison programming, whether actually participating or advocating, whatever it might be, are there things you mentioned about ways people can get involved and kind of help help this movement grow, become more established and, and accomplish some of the ends you were just talking about? Yeah, that's um, that's a little bit of a fraught problem for us. It's one we get a lot. Um, it is one that um, is deep in our history as an institution. I think like we've talked about earlier, you know, BPI is a program that was founded um, by me and other undergraduates at the time. So there's a long history of undergraduate engagement at BPI. There's different things that um, undergraduates from campus have done. But we also want to just posit a different perspective and push back a little bit, not at the optimism or aspiration to be engaged by those kids on campus that might want to do more. But there's very often a impulse to make the prisons a, a destination for um, just to be crude about it. And I apologize because it, we should never generalize. And um, there's obviously more nuance uh, to, to it very often. But a site for a certain amount of voyeurism or mm -hmm. a tourism, Yes. right? right. And if there's one thing that kids on campus should take from the success and the seriousness of incarcerated students, it's not just, it would be wonderful sort of to be in a room and have a discussion with these students. It should be to recognize what these students see is at stake for themselves and in the future in their own education yeah. and the seriousness which with, they, with which they pursue that education. And that isn't true just because those students are in prison. It's true because those students are alive and the time they have being alive on this earth is limited just like those students on campus. And let's make the most of this opportunity together if we're gonna face the challenges we all will in this vexing 21st century. Well Let those students be an example, not a destination for, uh, you know, either praise or uh, adventure. So, Max, this is a, it's been a fascinating conversation, and um, I think sets the stage really well for your, your visit to us next week. Of your uh, visit via Zoom, but we're glad to have you that way. Then no way at all. Um, I wanted to, we, we, we have a tradition in the podcast with, uh, that we call the lightning round, which is kind of five just short questions that we, uh, we ask our, uh, our interviewees just to help our audience get to know you a little bit better. And um, so I'll just jump in if you don't mind. And the, the, the first question we have is, uh, what was the last book you read and uh, would you recommend it to others? Uh, sure. The, the, right now I'm reading a fairly obscure uh, book by a man named Friedrich Reck called The Diary of a Man in Despair, which is uh, the journal of a very conservative 
uh, Prussian-born uh, aristocrat uh, during the Nazi period um, and his uh, really remarkable use of language describing his uh, contempt for uh, the fascists and the characters uh, occupying um, German uh, life at the time and so much mm. of the rest of the world at the time. And it's a um, it's an unusual perspective and a a level, uh, a use of language that uh, is unusual and um, frankly was uh, uh, familiar given um, some of the recent politics in the United States. Mm. Thank you for that recommendation. I had not heard that book, but it sounds intriguing for sure. Um, this is a this is a challenging one, but this could be just for today. You might answer the question differently tomorrow, so no pressure. But if if you could have dinner with any two people, uh, past or present, uh, who would it be? That that is a that that is a challenging one, and um, <laughs> I haven't had dinner with anyone other than my immediate family uh, right. in a year. So uh, maybe it would be uh, my parents. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I don't yeah. I don't know, but uh, I would love to see more of them. Uh, but um, a personal hero of mine who we should be thinking about at this moment in American life is the greatest legislator in American history, uh, Thaddeus Stevens. But from all reports, he was a wildly uh, unpleasant uh, person to be around uh, in a personal way. So I will go past him and um, maybe take this moment to acknowledge some of the uh, heroes in our little field of college and prison, a uh, man named uh, Bob Housewrath, the only person to keep a program open uh, during all those years when uh, we were in the wilderness uh, here in New York, uh, as well as Eddie Ellis, uh, a formerly incarcerated hero uh, of our generation just before uh, being a formerly incarcerated hero was a thing that was widely known or celebrated. Um, and uh, the, in some ways, first modern incarcerated person in the United States, the most famous person incarcerated uh, in the 20th century in the United States, who also in his own way went to college and prison, uh, and that is Malcolm X. God, yes, good one. Um, so Max, what's a hobby or pastime you like to engage in when you're not working? I, I, I'm, I'm hobbyless at this stage of life, Michael. Hobbyless. I'm, I'm, I'm hobbyless. <laughs> Does reading count as a hobby? Maybe I, I don't know if reading, if reading counts as a hobby, I, I, um, and I enjoy, um, I enjoy uh, music, particularly jazz music, um, very much as well. Great. And so uh, last but not least, Max, um, what is one story you often share to capture the impact of college and prison work? Now you're speaking to an audience or a new group who doesn't have a lot of experience topic, uh, maybe a story that you feel captures the impact of this work as, you know, and interpret that as you see fit. Look, rather than um, any particular story or narrative, you know, I would just say that it's important to know that our students come to the classroom with a enormous variety of life experience, or formal education behind them. Mm -hmm. Most come with a vast amount of justifiable cynicism about institutions, punitive or educational. Mm 
-hmm. Most probably finished their GEDs or the equivalent thereof, uh, whatever we call it now, while in prison. But BPI students have gone on to complete terminal degrees, master's degrees, doctorate degrees at places like Georgetown, Columbia, Cornell, Yale, NYU, the most elite and distinguished universities in the United States. And others have gone on to leadership positions in government, not-for-profits, business, philanthropy, you name it. And the reason I stay in the work as the problems we face as a society and a civilization and a people grow more and more vexing is precisely because all the experts, supposed experts about crime and punishment, et cetera, but also the experts in education suggest that that kind of achievement, that kind of academic success is impossible. And the sense that things that seem impossible might not be, and outcomes that are impossibly good are achievable, that is the only way we are going to face the challenges uh, in front of us successfully uh, over the next generation. And I hope we can use our failures in creating mass incarceration and divesting in education in the United States as an opportunity to move toward something better by being inspired by those people who have succeeded in the face of us failing them. Thank you, Max. I think that's a great way to end our conversation today. And, um, and of course, very much looking forward to us continuing uh, the conversation with a broader audience uh, on March 18th. So for now, though, thanks so much for taking time out of your day to, to join the Ethicist Corner and, and talk with us more about your work and your motivations. Michael, it was my pleasure. It was fun. And I'm looking forward to more. I uh, wish I could be with you in person, uh, but we'll do it here on Zoom. Sounds good, Max. We'll be seeing you soon. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Ethicist Corner podcast, a production of the Keckley Institute of Ethics. To hear future episodes, follow us on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or iHeartRadio.